almighty and everlasting God, who in the Easter mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if you noticed the, um, you know, the gospel reading from John 15. Uh, this is our Bible study in eight verses. Let me just read you these verses. Listen to these very closely. The whole notion of being grafted into the vine, who's Christ, bearing good fruit. This is great stuff. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine, that's all of you, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You don't want to be that. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. It might hurt a bit. Luther's great uh, explanation of the pruning was, he says the, the branches cry out in pain as the Father prunes them, and yet it's for their good, that it may bear more fruit. What's the goal? You bear more and more and more. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That's the viva vox. Abide in me and I in you. Participation, incorporation. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So all your good works are not if you don't have Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, remember words there is not just the spoken word. We're not, you know, we're not Protestants. It's the spoken word, it's the word made flesh, and it's the word that comes to fruition in body and blood on the altar. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Bernard of Clairvaux, he either says yes or something better. But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove, and so prove to be my disciples. Okay? Brilliant stuff. That's, uh, you know, that's what, that's James and, uh, and Paul together in, uh, in eight or nine verses, okay? It's all about participating in the flesh of Christ. It's all about residing in his body. It's all about doing as he does. And by so doing, this, is, this, may, this may rub you the wrong way, but Jesus says it, so we can say it. And by so doing, and in so doing, you prove that you are his disciples, Okay? You prove, in a sense, to the Father, I belong to the Son, I do as the Son does. And as James is talking about, you prove to the community around you. And I'm not talking about the community necessarily, I'm not talking about this community, I'm talking about the community, okay, outside these doors. I was, um, I was struck, I was in New York for a pastor's conference, uh, let's see, Sunday, well, it was four days and, and four days and three nights. I was there in part because I'm going back in October to give a paper, and in part because the guy who runs the camp was a very, very good friend of the seminary and said, come on out for this pastor's conference. So um, while I was there, I was struck as I talked to the bishop of that district, David Benke, and those of you who are blue blood Lutherans, yeah, shake your head, I can see that. Um, you know, David Benke, his, his claim to fame, uh, sadly, is that uh, he said the prayer at Yankee Stadium after 9-11. Uh, now, that's been almost eight years. Um, we need to let bygones be bygones. But uh, he was, uh, I'll give him credit. 
In fact, I rejoiced in this. I, I probably talked to him for two hours over breakfast with some other folks who were there. Um, one, he's a bishop who has an altar. And by that I mean he actually serves a congregation, which is a very odd thing. I think there are only two bishops in all of the Missouri Synod, the English District Bishop, which is a non-geographical district, and the Atlantic District out in New York. I think there are only two districts that have bishops that actually serve altars. Now, it doesn't say anything poorly about our bishop, who doesn't, um, but, it, but at least for the early church, there was a sense in which being a bishop meant you were at the altar every Sunday. And from your altar then flows the blessings of the bishop. So he's got his own altar. But as we were talking to him, it was very strange how he described his congregation. I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple examples. He said, now this is in New York. He's in, he's not in Brooklyn, he's in the Bronx. And he said, uh, I've got a lot of people in my congregation who don't have food at night. They just go hungry. Um, and we're trying, to, we're trying to fix that. I'm trying to get him food. Now, this guy's been a pastor for about 40 years. In fact, Richard John Newhouse, who recently died, we've run a couple of his things, they were great pals out in New York and, and almost classmates. He said, and this is just, I mean, think about, think about their world and our world. He said, I've got a very, uh, it was funny the way he described him, I've got a young black man in my congregation uh, who's been in trouble with the law and now he's in prison for 18 years. He said, I've got young white people in my congregation who are in trouble with the law. They're in prison for 18 years. He said, so Monday I'm going to Rikers for five hours to see my two parishioners. Now Rikers, you hear on like law and order all the time, you know, Rikers in New York. We don't have anybody in Rikers. Um, and I would be hard pressed to think that many of us go a night without food. Uh, but the community to which we belong is strikingly different than the community to which most folks in the world belong. And, and we, need to, we need to be cognizant of that. Um, I was just talking with someone the other day, and I said, you know, living in Wheaton is a very comfortable life. Uh, and not that, not that you or I necessarily have a lot, but we probably all have homes. And there are lots of people without homes, and many pastors who work with people who don't have homes. That's the world. Uh, and frankly, I want my own kids to be exposed to that. You know, because this is, in a sense, this is kind of, this is like playing the world here, you know? Things always, things go fairly well and we all suffer, but we, but we, have, a, we have the ability, at least in Wheaton, to kind of put on the veneer that all is well. And that's not the way the rest of the world is. So partly what James is saying is get out and look to the rest of the world. It's not about Wheaton. It's not be, about being in a place where there are 15 churches within five miles. It's about being where people don't have food at night, right? James begins, all these poor people come in and you say, be my footstool. You know, have we said that to folks uh, by not doing what we've been called to do? So that's what James is talking about. Look at your outline, though. You should have a new one. That was a long preface into what James is going to say next. Um, well, and here, you know, I'll, let me add one more thing to the preface. If you don't see that what they do in a place like New York City or downtown Chicago, if you don't see that as valuable, then you don't understand who Jesus is. You remember at the end of the gospel, what does Jesus say? When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. To be joined to the flesh of Christ means you do as Jesus does. And that may not always feel good, but to just say it doesn't happen or that's not, you know, I'm not concerned with that, is a denial of who Christ is. Okay? So James is talking about that. It's more than just this community. It's not just about St. John. It's about who's outside. Um, 
And I'm not going to run you through all these because, you know, we've been through them, but tending Christ and tending the application of Christ and tending the embodiment of Christ. If you don't understand Jesus by now, uh, you know, call me and let's find a time to chat because it's very important going forward. Many of our problems, I think, can be boiled down to the fact that we don't understand who Jesus is. And particularly, we don't understand what Jesus has called us to do. And I'm not even talking about good works now. I'm talking about faithfulness and joy and humility and truth and all the gifts that, that you can only find in Christ's flesh. But we've done this. There's one Christ. There's one Christian. It all comes together for you, in you, and through you. How does that happen? Jesus touches you. And then last week, um, you know, we kind of played off tending our tongues. Two weeks ago, he told us to tend your tongue. And there you see the tongue is the driving force behind the body, both a person and a congregation, with a unique ability to set fire to a community, both for good and for bad. If you, you know, think of all the, uh, all the problems you've ever experienced as you belong to a congregation, I would bet that many of them emerged from folks who talked, <laughs> right? The tongue has a unique ability. It controls us, as Scare says, it controls us and yet it cannot itself be controlled. And so then last week, it was using our tongues well. How do you use them well? You're wise with your tongue. Wisdom, you remember, is not about intelligence or common sense. First Corinthians, St. Paul says, and this is actually the great proof for bringing kids to the altar at a younger age. St. Paul says, the, discerning, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The wisdom of the wise is nothing. It's not about what you know. Okay, so they're, you know, they're always rumblings when we bring young kids to the altar. They don't know enough, or they haven't studied enough, or they haven't thought through it enough. St. Paul says very early on in 1 Corinthians, even before he talks about discerning in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And true wisdom is this, he says, to know the folly of the cross. Baptism allows you to know the folly of the cross. So Patrick Henry Reardon, who was here a couple months back, I asked him at lunch, why do you commune kids? He said, so they never go a day without the Holy Supper. Think about if your preschool kids all had the Eucharist. You wouldn't have any problems over there. You might have problems, okay. <laughs> might be a little more eager to pick those dandelions, I don't know. So wisdom, look at page two. Wisdom is Christ, and Christ is truth. And truth is meek and gentle and quiet and expects nothing in return. If you speak the truth, expect to, be, expect to be persecuted. And as Jesus says to his apostles, in that hour rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Okay? In that hour rejoice and be glad. Wisdom only appears when Jesus invades every aspect of our lives drawing us out of ourselves towards self-effacing humility. I'll give, you, I'll give you a little cue into my Pentecost sermon. It's not written yet, but this is what I'm thinking. The Holy Spirit, you know, I once said in a sermon, the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity. Well, I got, you know, eight or nine emails saying, you don't understand the Holy Spirit. Well, I beg to differ, but, um, you know, maybe there's a point. Maybe it's not that we've forgotten him. Maybe it's that he's self-effacing. He removes himself from the picture in order, to point him to some, in order to point you to someone else. Or Pope Benedict, he recently said, to be truly human is to be self-effacing. When it's no longer about you, then at last you are truly a human being. Okay? 
And James is going to talk about this when it's all about you. So the question for James, does our, our outward behavior, even and especially the use of our tongues, contradict what we publicly confess about the Christian life and so what we publicly confess about the Christ? Are speaking and believing in contradiction? Are we living in, in deception? Are we living a lie? Okay, this is all from last week. If it does, and if we are, then we can be certain that chaos, confusion, formlessness, instability, disturbance, and wicked and evil deeds are soon to follow. And the great, the, the most interesting observation from last week's study was the word that James uses for disorder is exactly the same word that the Greek Old Testament uses for chaos in Genesis 1. In the Hebrew, it's tohu abohu. It's, it's formless and void. It's utterly of the law. It's not the way the Father intends it to be. Well, in the Greek, it's translated the exact same, in the exact same word that James uses here in James chapter 3. Disorder is a return to what it was before Eden. Okay? Now, we're trying to get back to Eden. We're not trying to go back to the way it was before Eden. So, taming our tongues and tending how we speak, specifically being nudged towards speaking wisely. And you know there then, but the wisdom from above is first pure, true, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, easily obeyed. This is great. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You don't take sides. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When it comes to wisdom, truth is the most important characteristic. And truth creates peace, particularly when it's delivered gently and in such a way that it is easily heard and obeyed. Over the past, you know, two or three years, there's this notion, I think, it's, I think it might be our, our context, where we live, um, but this notion that peace and love can kind of trump everything. If you just love people, they're going to come around. That's not exactly what James says. James says, speak the truth, but speak it in such a way that people are loved by it. So love and peace in and of themselves can never be truly love and peace unless they're connected to the truth. It's very important. So today then, and you should have the text again on the last page of your, of your outline, avoiding war in the camp. Let me run you through just a few verses. It's so rich, we're not going to get through many here. Uh, probably just four of them, I hope. Avoiding war in the camp. James says, chap, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And the word there in the Greek is polemos, from polemical, you know? Polemics. You and I enjoy that. That's helpful at times, uh, but not in the Christian congregation. The word there in the Greek actually means not just quarrels, but war and fighting and battles and disputes. This is what the congregation to whom James is writing, they hate each other, okay? There's infighting, there's battling, there's quarreling, there are disputes. And James is saying, what the heck is going on? Right? Or scare on the next page. Commentators have debated whether the early Christians were so incensed at one another that they were actually bringing physical harm against one another to the point of death. These people are so angry that they're actually trying to kill each other. Okay? Now, as scare says, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what all commentators think. You can, as you'll see, you can murder people without actually you know, committing 
crime. Homicide is not the only form of murder. It is evident that the minds of the readers harbored rancor and malice, along with tendencies toward violence, which erupted in open bickering and fights. Okay? You should go to some district conventions. You might see this. That's a joke. Actually, I was, I was stunned. In all honesty, I, I give our bishop loads and loads of credit. One, how kind people were. I was very, I mean, it was refreshing, actually. And there are there always disputes. One thing that they, you know, they passed a couple resolutions that were discussed for quite some time. One was to, uh, you know, St. John is unique in that you have a pastor. You have a couple pastors. There are congregations throughout the world that don't have pastors. And often what happens is the district allows a lay person, you know, John Crow, we'd say to John Crow, you be, okay, well, a different guy. We'd say, to, we'd say to Jeff, you be the lay person who's going to be at the altar on Sunday. Well, as you know from the text, as you know from the scriptures, St. Paul says, regard us as stewards of the mysteries. And the question is, if you don't have a steward, do you have the mysteries? Well, the district finally came to its senses, at least the Northern Illinois district, and said, if we're going to put men at the altar on Sunday to stand in the stead of Christ as pastor, they need to go through some formal training and eventually be ordained. And I was surprised at actually what the vote was. I expected it to be, you know, 200 to 175. It was fairly overwhelming the other way that we think this is important. We're going to train men and we're going to ordain men. Um, the other one was whether or not um, commissioned ministers of religion, teachers and parish administrators and deacons and all those folks should have a vote at, at, at the district convention. Right now they don't. Um, and that went back and forth for a while as well. But I was surprised at how cordial it was and how quickly the bishop moved us through those things. But that's not always the case. As you see here, what's most troubling is that this fighting is occurring within the body of Christ. Okay, you expect war out there. You expect disputes. You expect battles. What is most troubling is that this fighting is occurring within the body of Christ particularly within the congregation gathered around the same altar, pulpit, and font. Why is that? I suppose the question, why is that? And that's the question that James is asking. Why is that? We all share the same bread, the same cup, the same water. We're all forgiven with the same word. Why is there infighting? Why is there dispute? Why is there a desire to murder each other? Okay? You don't have to answer that but at least, at least ponder that. I would at least propose to you, that goes back to what James said in the last chapter, which is, most important is truth. When you step over the truth, suddenly everything falls apart. Is it not this, says James, that your passions are at war within you? And the Greek word there is... Uh, it's, it's hedone, which is, which is like uh, a hedonist. Lust, pleasure, it's all about yourself. And you notice that this is utterly subjective. They are fighting because of their own desires, their own pleasures, their lusts, their idols. Whatever they have that stands before the congregation and stands before Jesus himself, that's the reason they're fighting. And I'll just use myself. When it's all about me, when it's all about me, whether in marriage or in family or in community or whatever, when it's all about me, conflict, fighting, and destruction are bound to occur. 
The question is, why? Why would at least propose, and I think James is as well, because subjectivity is driven by emotion and not truth. When it's all about your passions and your lusts and your idols and your feelings and your emotions, it's utterly subjective. It's not, and here's the key, it's out to win. It's out to win, not to reconcile or to strengthen or to bless, which is, as you heard, you know, two weeks ago or last week, that is at the heart of true wisdom. So think about conflicts in your own life. If the goal of that conflict on your side or from your perspective is to win, then you're not out for the truth. If your goal is reconciliation, the restoration of community, to bless, to give good gifts, to, to, you know, to help people find the straight and narrow, then you may be in the way that leads to everlasting life then you may be in the way of Jesus, the way of truth. But why have they so quickly forgotten what James just said in chapter 3, particularly that the Christian life is defined by Jesus and truth and objectivity? How have they forgotten that so quickly? This is, I mean, this is one sermon. So he's preaching the sermon, and he's saying, this is how you should live, and then you know, five or six verses later he says, but I've said this all along, and you've never lived this way. Why is that? James, verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you want things, and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. The congregation to whom James is writing is driven by getting what they want. They're driven by getting what they want. And you remember he just said in chapter 3, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Jesus. But you remember that the Christian life is defined by getting what Jesus wants. The greatest heresy is this, Burger King, have it your own way. And that is precisely what James' congregation is vying for. They are trying to get what they want. And when we have things our own way, I mean, ponder this in your own, in your own life. I, in fact, as I was writing this, I was thinking about it. Times when you've wanted something your own way so badly. Usually it doesn't work out so well. You know? Uh, I mean, I could give you example after example, but just, just think of a time when you wanted something so badly your own way, then you realize your, your own way may not be so great. And when we have things our way, this is number four, at the expense of the greater good of the community, we've essentially committed murder. Okay? And this is James. This is not me. This is James. When we have things our own way at the expense of the community, we have essentially committed murder. Remember the explanation to the fifth commandment from the catechism. We should be merciful, kind, and forgiving toward our neighbor. Murder is not just homicide. You speak an ill word, that's murder. This is Luther from the large catechism. You should go home and read it if you got it. You know, you don't just need to pull, a, pull the trigger on a gun to kill somebody. There's murder in this congregation to whom James is writing. They're all killing each other. And as James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Why is the life of that congregation falling apart? 
And here's the thing, feel free to chime in. I'm just, I'm just going, because I don't see any hands. Feel free to chime in. Why is the life of that congregation falling apart? Why do the lives of other congregations fall apart? You may think it's not because the truth, you may think it's not about being utterly subjective, or it's not about denying the truth. If that's what you think, raise your hand. You should tell us, because maybe you're right. Okay? Why is that congregation falling apart? Because they don't ask. And when they do ask, they do not ask for what's best. And this is, I think, I think, James is referencing specifically here a life of prayer. And, and I know that, you know, growing up as a Lutheran, uh, probably the thing I misunderstood the most in the Christian life was a life of prayer, that along with the sacramental life. I mean, I just, I just didn't get it. Um, I didn't see the importance. I didn't, I didn't have any sense. That, I didn't even know how to pray. You've seen that. I think we've run that before, that margin comment, where the little kid is on his knees and he says, you know, uh, I want a pony, give me a pony. Let's give this to the new members. I want a pony, give me a pony. I want a pony, give me a pony. I want a pony, give me a pony. And then the subtitle is, prayer before there was a set structure. Okay? Now think about your own life. How many times you've prayed that way? And you hear this. Lord, I just wanna. Just wanna what? Lord, I just wanna thank you. Or Lord, I just want you to give me this. I just want you to give me that. Or this would really be great for me. You know, there's a set structure in the scriptures. And uh, especially in Acts 4, you name the name, you tell the Lord what he's done, you ask what you want, you tell him how you're going to use it well, and you wrap it back up in the name. So as a Lutheran growing up, I had no idea how to pray. My prayers were, I want a pony, give me a pony. Um, but you, you kind of grow into a life of prayer as you begin to read the scriptures and listen to other people who have prayed well before you. The problem in James' congregation is the people don't know how to pray. Why? Because they're praying their prayers are utterly subjective. They're only praying for what they want. But prayer there, as you see, A, is utterly objective. So long as you are saying back to God what he has already said to you. Read the introduction, you know, get out the hymnal before the service and read the introduction to Lutheran worship. Prayer is simply saying back to the Lord what he's already said to you. I love you. Lord, you love me. I will give you gifts please give me gifts. I'll forgive you. Please forgive me. Not, I really want that, you know, Porsche 911. Okay? Lord, you've blessed me. Continue to bless me. Lord, you heal the sick. Heal those who are ill. Okay? Listen in the prayer of the church. These folks here don't know how to pray. And if you're praying, be you should be praying not from the poverty of your own heart. This is Bonhoeffer. It's brilliant. This, this prayer book on the Psalms is about 40 pages. Everybody should read it. Prayer, as Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer says, is not to stem from the poverty of your own heart. What I want. What I feel. My own idols and emotions. Prayer, says Bonhoeffer, should come from the richness of the Word of God. Why the Word of God? It's objective. It's truth. It's Christ. If you can't find it in Jesus, you shouldn't be asking for it. James' congregation is asking for the wrong things. They're praying for what they want, see, and not what Jesus wants. There are plenty of things that you and I want. Flip over. 
But the question is, before you ask for it, the question is, is that what Jesus wants? Okay? And prayer, the answer to prayer is not the old Lutheran bit, yes, no, or maybe. I mean, any God that says maybe is no God at all. I don't actually know where that come from, comes from. I don't think it's from Luther. I think it's in the explanation to the catechism, which, as you know, is not Luther's bit. Luther only wrote the first 26 pages or so. But the explanation, I think it says someplace God answers prayer, yes, no, or maybe. I mean, imagine your God who loves you so much, who has utter mercy, who has no wrath in his being, saying to you, well, let me think about it. Maybe. You know, that's what false gods say. The real God, the true and living God, says yes or something better. And now the maturity of the Christian life says the something better may not always be exactly what you want. You've got cancer and you say, heal me, please. The something better may be that you don't live. But the mature Christian, who is utterly objective, says, at the end of the day, as Richard John Newhouse said on his deathbed, your will be done. Okay? So then James, verse 4, you adulterous people. It's strange now. He's gone from murderer to people who covet and steal to now they're adulterers. Imagine if Nelson would have preached that this morning. You adulterous people. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The Greek word there for friendship is philos or you know, Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. It's one who knows another. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, now, now it shifts here. Your friend, and you think, oh, that's great, we kind of know each other. If you're not a friend of God, he says, if you're a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God, much stronger than just being a friend. The relationship between Christ and his church is a marital one. If there was, you know, if there, when I became a pastor, the thing... The thing people misunderstood the most, and this is across the board, actually, St. John's probably better about this, they didn't understand the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. They just don't get it. And that's part of the reason why we're doing this study. And I often wonder, as I reflect on Sunday mornings, I wonder if people get it. Do they, do they have a better sense of that now? You know, we all think, I've got Jesus' spirit or he died for me, or he loves me, or he covers me and forgives my sins. It is more tangible than that. Your flesh is his flesh. And if you don't understand that, you need to ask, because that's who Jesus is. And this too, Ephesians 5, people don't understand this. The relationship between Christ and his church is a marital one. The Lord has so joined himself to us physically, tangibly, concretely, sacramentally, that we are now one flesh with him. Everything he's got belongs to us. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. If Jesus won't do it, if Jesus doesn't do it, you shouldn't do it either. And everything we've got belongs to him. Everything you'd like to do. All your own desires and emotions and idols. Everything that's utterly subjective, guess what? You've given that to Jesus as a gift. As Luther calls it, the great exchange. And on the cross, of course, he is the greatest sinner who ever lived. The greatest gossip, the greatest liar, the greatest adulterer, the greatest thief, the greatest murderer. Doesn't matter. That's Jesus on the cross. But he's killed it there. You can't have them back. To choose something over our husband, be it our desires, our emotions, our reputation, 
our material goods, etc., is to commit adultery. To have it your own way is to commit adultery with Jesus. And if we choose something over Christ, we are friends of the world, and more we are enemies of God. The word there is hatred. I mean, think about that. If you choose, if you choose to have it your own way, you hate God. I mean, I can't put it any softer. That's what the text says. If you choose your own way, you hate God. Nobody wants that. But it is only with God, Matthew 19, 26. You know, it says there, but with God, with the Lord, all things are possible. But it is only with God that all things are possible. Reconciliation, community restored, new life, joy going forward. It is only with God that all things are possible, particularly when with is understood in terms of proximity. Not God and I are working together on this, but Jesus is with me because he's in my flesh. And so we do well to remember, and I would encourage you all to pray this. I, would, you, you, I once had a person ask me, what do you pray at the altar before the Eucharist? On a day like today, I pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Because on a day like today, the only thing in life that's good right now is the Eucharist. So you pray, you pray that the Lord has mercy on you, he delivers his body and his blood, and he turns things for their good. But most days, before I receive the Eucharist, I pray, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Right? With the centurion praise. So we would do well to remember the ancient prayer prayed before receiving the blessed sacrament. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I'm not worthy you should touch my tongue, but only say the word. Remember, Jesus, if you abide in my word and I in you, you'll have life and I shall be healed. Christ in us and for us, moving us to humbly receive all that he has to give. And, and, and one further, in us, for us, calling us to humbly live the life he's called us to live. That's the only way to go forward. And it all begins at the Eucharist. Um, I said to someone yesterday on the phone, the great thing about the Eucharist is it's the great equalizer. Doesn't matter what sins you've got or what good works you've got, it all evens up at the altar. That's great joy. Okay? Any questions or comments? Thoughts going forward? Yeah, Byron. Um, yeah. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, the comment was kind of um, having a conversation with the Lord is really how Byron said he learned how to pray. The inter there are two interesting things in there. One is, you know, how do kids learn how to speak? By listening to their Parents, right? So I encourage every new member class. I, I said once in a new member class, you don't know how to pray. You just don't. Folks just don't know how to pray. Regardless of where you've been or what you've done, folks just usually don't know how to pray. Just like they don't know how to go to confession. But I said, read people who are smarter than you. 
Read your fathers and mothers in the faith. Read their prayers. And by doing that, you learn how to pray. You don't know how to preach? Read the sermons of those who are good preachers. Right? And, and now, the, the, the striking thing in what you said was, you found it more refreshing to have a conversation than to pray sort of memorized prayers or prayers that are repeated. That probably is something that's very unique to your demographic, to your age group, because postmodern kids, and I'm not saying one's right or wrong, all I'm saying is it's a different perspective. Postmodern kids are given to repetition. You know, they're given to saying the same thing over and over again, particularly when that thing being said is 1,500 years old. So is it right to, to have a conversation with God? Yeah, it is. And you know, when your kid's in the ER with a tube about to be put down his throat, you'll have a conversation with God. You're not going to say, Lord Jesus Christ, great physician of both body and soul. You're going to say, oh my God, don't let this hurt. That's a conversation, and that's OK. At the same time, there is some value in repetition, and I think younger folks especially. I had a conversation when I was out in New York with someone who said, I can't believe how, how, uh, how the Latin mass has taken off with kids. Part of the reason is it's so ancient, partly because it's such repetition. It's the same thing over and over again, week in and week out. That's why people love the liturgy. So there's value in both. Converse with God and pray the prayers he's given you for a few hundred years and see what happens. Thanks, sir. That's great. What else? Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, good question. The question is, if passions are truly at war within you, which is true, and I think he's, there's a twofold meaning there. One is within you and within me. The other is, he's still talking about a corporate body here, too. So within us. Remember, he's talking to his congregation. If passions are within you, here's how you deal with them. The question is, how do you stop those? Well, the scriptures say a few things. Flee temptation. Okay, So if, you, so if his congregation is, um, is tempted by material goods, stay away. Uh, and the other thing is, and, and, and well, I would just say flee temptation, because you're all smart enough to know when that comes. You've experienced it a few times. If you know that your problem is taming your tongue, don't get involved in a conversation where you might have to speak, right? If your problem, I mean, this is like flee evil. What James is saying, James' thing can be summed up in, in just a few words, flee evil. Because the thing about the passions of the, of the flesh and the passions of your own subjectivity is once you touch them, they got the best of you. So whatever those are, find your thing. They're different for every person. There's some commonality here. However, every person has different, different things that press them. Figure out what those are and don't touch them. Flee evil. I mean, part of the reason the Lord gives you a brain is to figure out what evil is and what isn't. Little kids don't know that. They stick their finger in a, in a light socket. And you're like, don't do that again. Well, it hurt the first time, so they're not going to do it again. Adults, strangely, don't stop putting their finger in the light socket. So the Lord says, don't put your finger in the light socket. Now the question for you is, is that law or gospel? I would say it's gospel. He doesn't want you to kill yourself. Good question. Very good question. Anything else? All right, have a happy Mother's Day. Sons, daughters, treat your mothers well. Uh, we rejoice in the mothers who aren't with us. I was thinking about my own 
grandmothers this morning who aren't, uh, as I was at the altar with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, um, they're having a great Mother's Day. So is Mary. She's a good mom, too. So anyways, let's pray, and we will uh, we'll be on our way. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, 